the very same grace of God that we have received, even though we don't deserve it, causes us and gives, gives us a greater capacity to become more compassionate with other people around us. And because of that, here, here's what we need to see. Paul's going to get into some issues. He's going to identify some sin in the camp. But before he gets to that, he says, I want you to see that we need to be compassionate toward one another as we address the very issues that are alive and well in the church. And in so doing, we will have the capacity to see people not as issues to be dealt with, but as people to be loved. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. Started this series on the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul laid the foundation for everything that we're going to learn in this book. And over the course of the next number of weeks and months, we're going to get into some really difficult topics, and we're going to grapple with things, and Paul's going to identify some moral issues that are happening within the church of Corinth and the broader city of Corinth itself. But before talking about any of those things, Paul wants to lay out the foundation of the gospel. And so here's what we learned last week in a nutshell. I shared this with you. I said... That moralism says, if you live like heaven, you get to go to heaven. And cheap grace says, if you live like hell, you still get to go to heaven because God's grace is bottomless. But the true grace of God, Christian grace, says, you've lived like hell, you are deserving of hell, and the just judgment of God would be to send you to hell. But on account of the atoning sacrifice of his son and our rescuer Jesus, we have been set free from that. We have been grafted into a new inheritance, the new family of God, and we have been adopted into his family. Then only after the ink is dry on the adoption papers does God say this to you, go and live like the child of God you already are. Go and live like the child of God you already are. That's the foundation that Paul wants to lay at our feet, that if we are followers of Jesus, we are going to walk in his ways. This is the great exchange. Uh, in, the, in fact, the Apostle Paul, he continues to this theme in his second letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What did we just read? In the great exchange, God gave Jesus what we deserve. In the great exchange, God gave us what Jesus deserves. Everything has been flipped up on its head so that every single time God the Father looks at you, he sees the radiance of Jesus. He sees the beauty and the perfection of Jesus, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It makes us fall in love with Jesus over and over again. And, and it causes our hearts to go from being calloused and hard to being tender and compassionate. Our heart is tender toward God and our heart is compassionate toward 
our neighbor. The very same grace of God that we have received, even though we don't deserve it, causes us and gives, gives us a greater capacity to become more compassionate with other people around us. And because of that, here, here's what we need to see. Paul's going to get into some issues. He's going to identify some sin in the camp. But before he gets to that, he says, I want you to see that we need to be compassionate toward one another as we address the very issues that are alive and well in the church. And in so doing, we will have the capacity to see people not as issues to be dealt with, but as people to be loved. And so much so that the farther they are from God, the more they run from God, the more tender and compassionate our hearts become because we realize we used to be that way too. We used to be running from God. We used to be far from God. But because of his grace, we abide with him. We abide with him. It changes our hearts and the trajectory of our lives. I have a little note that I read every single morning when I step into my office, a little sticky note, and it sits there on my desk and it says this, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. That's for me. It is the kindness of God that has led to my repentance, that he has orchestrated my life in such a way that the heart of stone has been turned into a heart of flesh and I see Jesus for who he is. But not only that, it is the kindness of God through me, through us, that leads to the repentance of others. And Paul wants to tenderize our hearts. He wants us to see the gospel for what it truly is so that when we get into the issues of morals and obedience and living a righteous life, that we're looking at it with the proper lens, with the proper glasses, the proper worldview to see what, it, what our focus ultimately has to be. That's what God wants us to see. And so Paul wants to identify first things first. And here's, here's where we ended last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 said this, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And that's what we're going to focus on again today. And to set the stage for that, I want to review a story that occurs just before the sequence of events that Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. So I shared with you last week that the Apostle Paul, he was in Corinth from 49 to 51 AD. About 18 months he was in Corinth. But what he's going to talk about today in Acts chapter 17 is an event that occurred in 49 AD, just before he went to Corinth. And in order to understand what Paul is saying in the first Corinthians letter, we have to understand the context. We have to understand the genesis of the story. And that's what I want us to review together today. So as some of you know, the Apostle Paul was a brilliant scholar and theologian. He's what I like to call a brain on a stick. Super duper smart. And uh, one thing that we know is that he was trained by one of the greatest leaders and teachers in the Sanhedrin, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Many Jews, even today, revere him for his ability to be an incredible rabbi. And so Paul was taught under him. And Paul was considered to be one of the greatest theologians of his day. He always rose in the ranks. He was always an intellectual elite. No matter what he put his hands on, it always grew. 
from the time that he was a Jewish zealot persecuting Christians, and even when he became a Christian apostle for Jesus, Paul was an incredible mind, very smart. And he eventually found himself in the city of Athens. But he was frustrated and disturbed and distressed because he found himself in a place that prided themselves in being intellectually elite. There were a lot of really smart people in Athens and they were on the cutting edge in terms of their uh, views on theology and philosophy and astronomy and mathematics and science. They were just really, really smart people. And it was all these super smart people all hanging out in the same place. Like what a dream for Paul. A bunch of brains all in the same place. And he has the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Not only that, the people of Athens prided themselves in being open to new religious ideas. So they love to think. They love to talk, they love to learn, they love to listen, and they love to think about new religious ideas. Like, what fertile soil for them to learn about the good news of Jesus. Paul's in Disneyland. He is super excited about this. In fact, it says this in Acts 17, verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the greatest, newest ideas. And all the brains said, what a dream. And the rest of us said, what a bore. But they're excited. So Paul, he, he sits out in the main city street and he starts talking to anyone who will stop and listen to him, sharing the good news of the gospel. But very few come to know Jesus. And he's disappointed. But then he eventually gets his break. Someone comes up to him and says, you know what, we would really love for you to come on by to one of the greatest places in the world for communicating new religious ideas, a place called Mars Hill. Perhaps you've heard of it. We got a picture of it uh, right here. It's a place that you can go visit today. It's in Greece. Many Christians make pilgrimages to Mars Hill. There's churches and organizations with the name Mars Hill as part of their institution. This is an incredible place, a great amphitheater where people can come and learn about the, new, the newest religious ideas. And Paul has been invited to go here to share the good news with thousands of people listening, he's caught his break. This is the big opportunity. And so let's read this. Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 22. Here's what happens. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aragopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and the earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, 
we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so let's look at what Paul just did. This is a brilliant work of art, an incredible apologetic, which is just a big word for giving a defense of the Christian faith. That's what he is doing in front of these hundreds, even thousands of people who are listening to him. And he uses anecdotes and stories that they would understand. He's communicating with a language that is helpful to them. And this is considered to be, to this day, one of the most masterful, eloquent, culturally sensitive messages that the world has ever seen. In fact, if your Bibles are open, even look again at verse 28. He quotes some of their best, most well-known philosophers like Epimenides or Aratus. So he's using language that they would understand. And he's even talking about the logical inconsistencies. You say that you serve gods, but you also say that you don't know who those gods are. But you also say that you should worship them and erect uh, altars and tombs and temples on their behalf. But you don't know what they like or who they are. Or what they're like. Do you not see the inconsistency of what it is that you are doing? And then he brings it all down to the most significant event in human history. The death and resurrection of Jesus. It's masterful. But there's just one problem. Let's keep reading. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead... They all said in unison, what must I do to be saved? Is that what your Bible says? No. Let me get the real Bible for a second. Verse 32 says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on that subject. But at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Aragopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a few others. Very few came to know Jesus on that day. Why? Why? And then we read this, chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to where? Help me out. To Corinth. He went to Corinth. And as I shared with you last week, Acts chapter 18 is the account of Paul's time in Corinth. And the reason why I think it's so important for us to understand what happens in Acts chapter 17 is because it finds its genesis in the story that I just read to you. And without understanding what happened at Mars Hill, we are not going to catch the point of what Paul is about to tell us in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. That is going to make things abundantly clear. Because as eloquent as Paul was, the results were dismal. The results were dismal. Why is that? Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel 
not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, circle, highlight, underline, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, stop right there for a second. Why is the gospel of Jesus a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles? Let's really quickly uh, recap both of these. Let's start with the stumbling block to the Jews. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, it says this. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Did you know that was there? Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The one thing that the people of Israel could not imagine is the idea that their Messiah, the son of the living God, the one who would overthrow all of the principalities and powers of this world, would redeem the world and bring all God's people to himself, they would come and save the world and would lose and would lose. That was unfathomable to them that the Messiah would do that. They thought they would be set free, redeemed, reconciled, saved. And for the sake of those of you who weren't here during our Daniel series, I shared with you that there are a series of Old Testament prophecies that created a window of time for the people of Israel to know when the Messiah would come. So in Daniel, we talked about the four kingdoms, right? The Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, then the Romans. And so during the time of Rome, all the people of Israel were on high alert waiting for the Messiah to come. And then comes along Jesus, and he's constantly fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, even in terms of his miraculous signs and wonders. Like, why is it that Jesus chose to give sight to the blind? Why is it that the lame man, he allowed them to walk, or the, or the paralyzed man? Why was it that the leper, he cleansed? Because these are all references in the Old Testament that the Messiah would do this, so that you would know that the Messiah had come. But the one thing that they couldn't conceive of was that their Messiah would lose. And so here's Jesus on Palm Sunday. He comes in on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And what are the people of Israel crying out? Hosanna! Which means what? Save us. Save us. And he goes to the central court. And they think this is the moment. This is the moment when the Messiah, the long-awaited king of the Jews, will overthrow the Roman authorities and take his place as king. But what happens? He hands himself over. And then he goes to a cross. And he stretches out his hands. And he dies on a tree. Cursed is the man who dies on a tree. 
it is a stumbling block to the Jews. Why is it foolishness to the Gentiles? Well, especially during that time, the one thing that was inconceivable is that the creator of the universe would put on flesh, and yet we read John chapter 1. What's the very first thing that we see in the New Testament? That the creator of the universe puts on flesh and dwells among us. You mean to tell me in, in a first century context when they're constantly trying to escape from this physical form? That the creator of the universe will put on flesh and dwell among us? You mean that the creator of the universe got hungry and ate? Got thirsty and had a drink? Had to go to the bathroom and went to the outhouse? Like, are you kidding me? The creator of the universe did that? No way. And not only that, he died on a, a tree. Oh, and he rose again. But when he rose again, he didn't rise as some ethereal Casper high in the sky. But he put on flesh again. And he walked around. And who believes in a resurrection anyway? You believe in some phony, antiquated book. Silly you, misguided you. It is foolishness to the Gentiles. It is a stumbling block to the Jews. And then we keep reading in verse 24. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were before you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. That's you, no offense. Not many of you were influential. That's us. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. So let me ask you a question. Like, does God have something against getting a good education? Like, should we all say, no student should go to the best university, Dort College? Way to go, buddy. You should go to worse ones, you know? Is God, is God opposed to education? No, like, don't, don't hear this wrong. This is Paul the super brain, right? He is an intellectual elite. He is a brain on a stick, so what is he trying to say? He's trying to say that there's something that is a unique danger, spiritually speaking, to anyone who has a sin nature. When you rise in the ranks of authority or power or influence or intellect or beauty or any of those things, here's what happens. You start to become snooty and snobbish. And you begin to forget the great dependency that you have upon God. If you are not careful, the very things that God gives to us as gifts become the very basis upon which we say, you know what, I don't need God anymore. I can take it from here. I got everything that I need. Why would I need God? I got a great big security fence. I got a big bucket of cash in the bank. I got a big beautiful, beautiful fortress. I have influence. I got fame. I got authority. I got intellect. I got wisdom. I got everything going for me. 
And yet even those things that are, are really beautiful, what is idolatry? What, I've, what have I said to you for now four years? Idolatry is simply this, taking a good thing, making it a God thing, and on account of that, it becomes a tainted, broken, and awful thing. And so even in these good things, they become evil. You think of the words of Jesus when, when he is talking to the rich young ruler and he says, I have followed all the commandments of God since I was a little boy. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, go sell all your possessions. Come and follow me. And he goes away sad. And then Jesus gives a bit of a, a teaching and instruction to the disciples. And he says, I tell you the truth. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to inherit eternal life. Is the point that riches are bad in and of themselves? No, no. It's just that when you add riches and your sin nature together, that ultimately you will forget about your dependency upon God and you will use placebos and the luxuries of life to forget about the reality of the world that we live in. And if we're not careful, we will run far from God. And even in our intellect, our knowledge, this can be true. And so Paul and Jesus say, watch out. Watch out. Pick up again in verse 30 with me. It says this, or 31. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. If you treat your Bible as a live textbook, you might consider underlining that chapter or uh, that verse right there. And in the margins, consider writing down Acts chapter 17 in the margins. He is referencing what happened when he came from Athens where he did preach with eloquence. He did preach with wisdom, but it bore no fruit. Why did it not bear any fruit? Well, he continues, verses two and three, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know what's really interesting? If you still have your Bible open, go back to Acts chapter 17 and remind yourself of how many times the Apostle Paul mentioned Jesus. I'll give you a clue. It's between zero and zero. He doesn't mention Jesus. He doesn't mention him. Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to remain civil and to do a good apologetic. and just, He's trying to do some gymnastics and jujitsu to make sure that he can appeal to them on the basis of what we might call the common grace of God. Look at the world. Look at creation. Look at your own philosophers. And yet it bore little fruit. And so he made a decision then and there. I, I'm not going to preach the gospel in that, any, in that way anymore. I'm going to focus on Christ crucified. The death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That is going to be my sole focus moving forward. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And so this is a look into the Apostle Paul's approach into ministry after the negative experience that he had in Athens. 
And that is why it was so important for us to understand the context of where Paul was coming from just before he came to Corinth. So for the remainder of our time this morning, here's what I would really like for us to do. I would love for us to roll up our sleeves and to picture ourselves sitting at a coffee shop asking ourselves this question. How can we share our faith in the same way as the Apostle Paul? What sort of instructions is he giving us when it comes to sharing our faith with others? What are the things that we need to watch out for? What are the anxieties that grow within our heart that keep us from sharing the good news of the gospel? And how can we grow in these areas as we challenge one another? And I think this is especially helpful because we just finished our series on the firm foundation. You might recall in our very last week, I encouraged you, if we are to be serious about the Great Commission, making more and better disciples of Jesus, then what we need to be doing is sharing our faith with people within our orbit. So I encouraged you to start praying for four people who are far from God. A friend, a family member, a coworker or a classmate, and a neighbor. And then from there, once you are committed to praying for them every day, that you would invest in their lives. The best way to do that is with your time. And then finally, to invite. And this is where it gets really difficult. When it comes to invite, that might be inviting them to church with you. It might be inviting them to your life group or to coffee break or to a Bible study. It might be to invite them out for coffee and to pray to God for the opportunity to share what Jesus has done in your life. And we might get a little bit anxious about that. And say, oh, like, I don't know if I want to do that because I have to work with them. And if it gets weird, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. And if I have to do it with a family member, then every Christmas and every Thanksgiving when we get together, it's going to be weird. Or, you know, if you're a farmer and you got a semen salesman and, you know, they're, not, they're far from God, you're like, well, like, if, I, if it doesn't go well, then all of our interactions in the future are going to be, like, really weird. You know, like, I, I don't know if I want to do that. So how do we have the conviction and the courage of our hearts to share our faith with those who are far from God? What are the things that we should focus on? And I think one of the things that we're gonna notice as we walk through this is we tend to make it far more laborious and sophisticated and difficult than what Paul is going to instruct us to do here. I hope that you see by the end of this that it is quite simple. Because even the Apostle Paul, with all of his wisdom, was not wise enough. With all of his eloquence, he was not eloquent enough. And with his super huge brain, he was still not smart or convincing enough. But here's what he realized. In order to turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, it is going to take far more than my eloquence or my wisdom. It is going to take a miracle of God. It is going to take a miracle of God. And that's what his focus was from the time of Corinth and for the rest of his days. So let's look at this. How to share your faith like Paul. Here's the first thing I put in your note sheet. Emphasize the gospel before theological fine points. Emphasize the gospel before theological fine points. And so the example that he gives here is baptism. We see that in verse 17, right? He says, I came to preach the gospel not to baptize. Now that seems really strange that he did that because uh, for those of you who are members here, you know that as Reformed Christians, we say these are the three marks of the true church. The true preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, that's the Lord's Supper and baptism, 
And then church discipling and discipline, building each other up so that we can grow into the likeness of Jesus. Those are the three marks of the true church. And it seems like Paul just said, of those three, there's one that is a priority sequence. So I, I, I gotta say this, you gotta, you gotta hear what I'm saying here. Is baptism important? Yes. Is the Lord's Supper important? Yes. But Paul is telling us right here, even before those things, I'm going to prioritize the gospel. So here's a way of thinking about that. A father has to call his children to dinner before they sit down for the meal. We gotta have the horse before we can pull the cart. It's all important, but one of them is primary. One of them is primary. So let's, let's use baptism, because that's where Paul went. Let's use baptism as an example for us when it comes to prioritizing the gospel even above and before theological fine points. It, it might be a helpful example. We believe that baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality, of something that God is doing in us. It is a sign and a seal of the covenant promises that God has made. All Protestant traditions believe this. All of them believe this, that the old sign of the covenant, covenant for the people of Israel was circumcision. And then comes along the Apostle Paul and all the apostles, and they say the new sign of the covenant, according to Jesus, is baptism. But here's where we begin to diverge. We have our Presbyterian and Reformed and Anglican and Lutheran and Reformed Christians, and all of them say, if the sign of the old covenant is circumcision, and that happened to tiny little infants, then what we need to be doing is baptizing believers and children of believing parents. And we read about examples of that in Acts chapter 16, verse 15, Acts chapter 16, verse 33. There's examples of this that is laid out in Scripture. But then on the other side, you got your Mennonites and your Baptists and your Pentecostals and Free Denoms, and they're all saying, no, 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 no. The focus needs to be our profession, because if we're going to say it is an outward expression of an inward reality, what is more clear than someone with their own mouth saying, I believe Jesus is Lord, and then they come and they get baptized. And it's beautiful too, and we see examples of that in Scripture. So here's the question. Which one is it? Is anyone nervous? Like, what's he gonna say? Oh my goodness. So let me just tell you, we're all gonna find out in heaven that I was right, okay? <laughs> but until we get there, let me just tell you, as Reformed Christians, we obviously have theological reasons as to why we do what we do. We have firm convictions for why we do what we do. But here's what I will tell you, that a Jesus Christ who stretched out his hands and died on that tree is not going to tell you at the end of your days, mm, I'm sorry you can't come in, you were watered the wrong way. Right? And so here's, here's what you have to see. For those of us who are Reformed Christians, we're not going to apologize for this. We, we have strong theological convictions that we believe that there is a theological basis, a biblical basis for why we do what we do. But by the same token, the manner in which Christians pontificate at each other and fight with each other on something like this just should break our hearts. I think it should just break our hearts. 
Because here's the thing. If it was abundantly clear, like crystal clear, 100% clear, then guess what? We wouldn't be fighting about it. But we do. We do. And how much more true is this of someone who is far from God? If we're already fighting, even as Christians, how much more is this true for someone who is far from God? What they need long before theological fine points is the gospel. Jesus is who he says he is. And that we walk through the essence of the gospel with them. Sometimes we put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Here's the second one. We need to prioritize the gospel before issues of morality. The gospel before issues of morality. You know, it doesn't do anyone any good to try to moralize non-Christians. Why? Let's think about our theology for a second. What are we doing? And I'm not just saying this to be crass. All we're doing is populating hell with nicer people. Aren't we? Because here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. What's he saying? We cannot moralize people into heaven. We cannot moralize people into heaven. And we get it so backwards sometimes. Let me just share two essential doctrines with you that we believe as Reformed Christians. The doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification. The doctrine of justification says at the moment of our conversion, the Holy Spirit comes into our life in that moment and we have been set free, redeemed, justified by the blood of the Lamb. And it's before we've done anything at all. We haven't done anything. We were dead to sin. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and he became our propitiation, which is just a big word saying he is our atoning sacrifice for our sins. He paid for the debt. We are justified before we've done anything at all. And then the doctrine of sanctification says, at the moment of our conversion, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and he begins changing us from the inside out. And as we walk with Jesus, we begin to look and act and behave more like Jesus. Do you remember um, a couple weeks ago I shared with you the, the greatest compliment a Talmud disciple could ever get from their rabbi or from anyone else was this, the dust of your rabbi is all over you. And the more we walk with Jesus, behind him, following him, following his steps, our hope is that the dust of our rabbi Jesus would be all over us. That we would look and act and behave more like Jesus. But it will happen progressively over time. Kind of like a three steps forward, two steps back sort of scenario. And we're constantly banging our heads on things. But when we're falling, we're falling forward. So if we believe that, in theological terms, we believe in the doctrine of justification, which is primary, sanctification, which is secondary, then we should never try to moralize people into heaven. But what we should do is introduce them to Jesus, who will change their hearts from the inside out. That's what we say we believe. But again, sometimes we get it so backwards. And maybe the best example we can get of this is the thief on the cross, what did the thief on the cross say to Jesus? Don't forget me when you go into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Mm, I'm sorry, you haven't been baptized. Oh, I'm sorry, you, you don't know the five solas of scripture. 
Sorry, you don't know the doctrine of justification or sanctification or, or what my kingdom even is. Sorry, buddy. What's he say? Today you will be with me in paradise. Because Jesus is the propitiation of our sins. Not our pedigree, not our morals, not our giftedness, Jesus. And if that's the case, then like Paul, we are going to say, here's what I'm going to emphasize, Christ crucified. That will be my central focus more than anything else. Christ crucified is going to be my focus. Not issues of morality. Those things are secondary. They'll come. They'll come. And just like in 1 Corinthians, they're coming. Oh my goodness, we're all going to squirm for the next like four months. It's going to be so much fun. Woo. But until then, we have to see the essence of the gospel. Here's the third one. We're going to emphasize the gospel before what I'm just calling polish. Polish. Paul used to lean on polish. In Athens, he preached with wisdom and with eloquence and with maturity and all those things, and it got him nothing. Not because those things are bad in and of themselves. We still need to hone our craft. We still need to know our Bible. But more than that, as I've shared with you already, the most central, vital thing for an unbeliever is that God would bring about a miracle in their hearts. So if you have a loved one or a friend or a family member or a coworker or a neighbor uh, who's far from God and you're wondering to yourself, what should I pray for? What should I pray about? I would encourage you to do this. Pray that they would catch a glimpse of the way that Jesus sees them. That they would catch a glimpse of the way that Jesus sees them. How much he loves them. Why he died for them. The fact that he knows every hair upon their head. And that he came from heaven to earth and stretched out his hands on that tree for them. Consider that to be your prayer. Even more than polish. Even more than your ability to walk through the Romans roadmap or any other tool to bring them to know Jesus. That God would do a miracle in their heart. Pray for that. Finally, what should you expect? What should you expect if we have the courage of our convictions to share our faith with our unchurched and unbelieving friends? What should we expect? On the one hand, are they all going to like fall down on their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? And on the other hand, are they all just going to respond by saying, what a bunch of phony nonsense. You follow some antiquated book written 2,000 years ago by a bunch of people. Like, come on, move on. It's not true. What's the response going to be? I hope you can see by now, it's not exclusively either of those things. This is the way I put it in your note sheet. You should expect a mixed reaction. A mixed reaction. That some will say, what must I do to be saved? And my goodness, what an opportunity to be a part of God's kingdom, inviting, ushering in someone into God's kingdom. And on the other hand, some people will sneer and say, that's just a bunch of bogus shenanigans. There's nothing true about that. And in both situations, the decision that we make is I'm going to keep loving them. Because I don't know where they're at in the story. I think about the Apostle Paul when he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So here's the point. Don't worry about the outcome. Just throw the seeds. Just throw the seeds. And do it with intentionality, with people that you know that you can build relationships with, that they could see the love of Christ through you and in you. And in that way, God will use you for his kingdom. So I want to end this way. I want to end with a quote from a scholar and theologian by the name of J.C. Ryle. And he says something incredibly profound, which really highlights what we've been learning for the last two weeks into what we're focusing on right now. He says this, Assurance of your salvation makes you as bold as a roaring lion and as light as a soaring bird. As bold as a roaring lion and as light as a soaring bird. What will give us the conviction of our hearts to share our faith? I can tell you it's not going to be a, a, a case of just pulling up your boot, bootstraps and saying, I got to do it. What it's going to take is the softening of your own heart to realize that you used to be that person too. You used to be far from God until he opened up your heart. And because of the kindness and the mercy and the compassion of God, it has led to your repentance. And is it possible that through the kindness of you, that you might lead others to repentance? You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series, focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.